0: This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreeds.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE, SPACE, REED, SPACE, DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order.
1: Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit DoubleOrNothingReads.com for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's DoubleOrNothingReads.com. Hi, I'm Galit
0: Kounid. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
2: Well, Jackie, it's back to school. How are you feeling?
0: I'm actually feeling pretty ready. I've had a nice, relaxing summer, not without things to do, but it's been enough of a recuperation period that I'm kind of, I'm kind of ready to go back. How about you?
2: Well, I feel pretty good. Um, can I tell you what, when I was doing my doctorate, I had this ritual that I would do when school started back up because it always made me so stressed. (laughs) Um, this is also a shout-out to Amanda Talley, who reminded me of this a couple months ago, and I've been waiting for an opportunity to sneak it into a podcast episode. But um, what I used to do was when I would wake up in the morning, I would just talk to myself and be like, okay, all you have to do is open one eye. <laughs> you don't have to do anything else. Just open one eye. And then I would do that, and I'd be like, you're doing so great. Okay. Now all I'm gonna ask of you is to open the other eye. Oh my god, you're doing so great. I was like, talk myself out of bed, into the shower, like every day. It was, it was a mess. It was a hot mess, but you do what you have to do to survive.
0: Well, that reminds me of, uh, shout out to Rachel Coth, who uh, I went to the University of Iowa with, and she would do the same thing but with her reads. So, like, she'd open (laughs) up her read case and be like, you guys are going to be great. You're going to play well. You're going to be consistent. You're going to play in tune. And she would, like, pep talk her reads through, you know. (laughs) The positive vibes she wanted them to have.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All you have to do is stick out one leg from under the covers. That's it. (laughs) Just one leg. Nothing beyond that. You're doing so well. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) It's hard work being a student. I don't know of any, like, I've never, I've never been more stressed than when I was a student. So. My heart bleeds for all of you, but you're going to be great. Just take it one step at a time.
0: See, I feel like it was, like, not too bad being a student. I feel like I had so much time when I was a student, and now being a teacher, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I would kill for the amount of time <laughs> in excess that I had when I was a student. Oh, that's true. I was
2: When I was a student, I was, like, really intimidated by all of the constructive criticism you know like you you're a student and you're just getting it from all sides you're getting it from ensemble directors you're getting it from your peers you're getting it from your teachers and it's all good it's all like good feedback but I remember just it being really overwhelming so now I'm on the other side of that and I'm like smiling
0: you know. Maybe that's my problem, because in school I was definitely, like, the Monica Geller type, like the, I know, I know, oh, my God, teacher's cut, hi. And uh, so as a teacher, you know, it can sometimes be like, where's my approval? Where's my person cheering me on and checking in with me every week? I could really use that. Well, what other back to school tips do we have for our listeners?
2: Well, if you're, let's say you're a freshman or a grad student going into school, a new place for the first time, my advice is to be open, try to stay as organized as you can and ask a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, I don't understand. Could you explain it a different way? um and also like try to be a joiner I this is coming from someone who's not a joiner by nature but you know I think there's a lot of strength in community so find your community and find the people who you can support and who will support you and I think that goes a long way
0: definitely one thing I always love to do and I still do this so this is for teachers too um is I'm a big fan of like new year's resolutions and goal setting and that type of thing and i had
2: no idea <laughs> about <laughs>
0: that about you (laughs) but I love to do it for every semester like I love to do a new school years resolution and I'll always love to do new semesters resolution so um yeah that helps me a lot like this semester I'd I'd love to accomplish and kind of mix it with tangible goals and intangible goals uh so that you have you know a, a nice balance in measuring your success and whatnot but so that's that's one thing I would encourage people to do is just kind of write down what you'd like to accomplish over the semester and over the academic year just to keep you, you know, I feel like it's easy to have energy at the beginning of a year, school year that is, but to Mm -hmm. sustain that throughout is hard. So I make my goals, I put them in like a little uh, image and then I make that the background of my phone. So I'm like constantly looking at the stuff I want to accomplish every time I check a text or an email or that type of thing. So that's worked for me. Such a go-getter. I try, I try,
3: <laughs> but we all need
0: a little bit of help. So we've come up yeah. with an idea to help everyone in their back-to-school transition and maybe give you a little bit of swag in the process. So Galit, tell the people what they want to know.
2: Well, first I want to tell the people to try not to freak out because it's so awesome. <laughs> but we have compiled a back-to-school giveaway and uh it's gonna be flames the stuff that we have for the giveaway
0: yes yes
2: so to enter the giveaway all you have to do is take a picture of yourself listening to double reed dish and post it to our social media, which is Double Redish on all of the social medias. The only one we don't do is Snapchat. I don't get it, so we don't do it. Um, but we do Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and you can also email it to us at DoubleReadDish at gmail.com. And that is your entry, and we will accept um, entries until August 25th. And do not despair, international listeners. This goes for you, too.
0: But what if they're not a student? Can the teachers or just professionals or self-employed, can they join too, Galeen?
2: Anybody can join. It's good for everybody.
0: We should say, though, these pictures are going to get reposted on our social media. Don't though, do anything so.
2: weird. Don't do anything gross. Just you, your <laughs>
0: headphones, you know, uh, maybe your your uh, screen capture of your phone listening. We're, we're just looking for how you enjoy So you guys want to know what is up to win, okay? You're going to think I'm done. I'm going to keep going, okay? So what (laughs) do we got? Tell
2: the people what they want to hear, Jackie. We got
0: a reed soaker cup. We got a spool of thread. Oh, my God. We have a gender reed knife. Stop it. We have a gender cutting block. Oh, my God. How many CDs? Not one, not two, not three or four. We have five CDs to give away. And these are from our past guest artists, so you know they are amazing. These are some of the best musicians you could even possibly hear. We got those to give away. And you may say, wonderful, but I need to buy some cane. I need to buy some sheet music. I've got assignments that I need to take care of this semester. I've got stuff to get done. Well, we're going to give you $25 towards a cane or sheet music purchase of your choice to wherever you want. So twenty five bucks to spend on supplies.
2: Plus, JGW sheet music has offered two pieces from their catalog.
0: This is so epic! I know that you guys are going to want to go nuts and try to win these prizes. And so we can't wait to give this stuff away, and can't wait to see the cool, funny pictures <laughs> that you all <laughs> send in. Back to school. Back
1: to school. To prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh,
2: back to school, back to school, back to school. So I've got an awesome shout out this week. I, as you know, Jackie, am a podcast aficionado. And I heard this really awesome episode of the Hidden Brain podcast, which is on NPR, and uh, we'll link to this particular episode, but it's the July 24th, 2017 episode called U2.0 Deep Work. And it's an interview with the author of a new book titled Deep Work by computer scientist Cal Newport, and he He writes about um, our attention and how, you know, our constant engagement with our phones and our email and social media um, is actually doing us a lot more harm than, you know, we think. Um, And so he advocates, and he does this in his own life, but he advocates, and this blew my mind, but he schedules four weeks in advance the hours in his day that he is committing to what he calls deep work, which is uninterrupted creative work. So this could be practicing. It could be composing. It could be just thinking about a project that you want to plan or whatever it happens to be. And he schedules four weeks in advance, immovable times in his day where he does not answer the phone. He does not check his email. He does not check social media. Um, and he just works on his creative work and he talks about, um, it's like, it's like only, you know, 36 minutes long, so it's not that long, but he talks about the damage that we do to a creative attention span when we just say, oh, I'm just going to check my email real quick because the, the thought of I'm going to check my email real quick is the most damaging thing. Like, just the thought, just it popping up in your head is what is damaging to our brain so that we have to rewire how we think and we can devote, like, specific uninterrupted time to whatever it is that we want to be fully immersed in. And I've been doing this for the last week or so since um, I heard this podcast. I just scheduled, like... For example, 9 to 11 in the morning and then 1 to 3 in the afternoon of uninterrupted deep work time. And I feel so much better about my practicing, about my organization, about my class prep, like all of that stuff that I have been like, you know, you have that constant back burner stress. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where you're like just always thinking about something. You're like, oh, I have to do this. I have to do this. But then you don't do it. Like actually doing it. Oh my God, it feels great, and I'm really interested in getting his book and reading it. Um, I can't shout out the book yet because I haven't read it, but this podcast is really great. This particular episode, so that's my shout out for this week.
0: No, that sounds awesome. And as someone who kind of prides themselves on the uh, ability to multitask, it it there's a time and place for everything. You know what I mean? And it's. You shouldn't always be multitasking. There is definitely a benefit to just focusing and giving your full attention, especially to something as important as practice or preparing a class for our students or that type of thing. So I can't wait to check that out. It's going to be awesome.
2: Yeah. Actually, one line that he said that totally sucked me in was, nobody nobody ever became successful by being great at answering emails. And I was like, oh, my God. Girl. <laughs>
0: I'm triggered officially. <laughs> in
2: a good way or in a bad way? Oh,
0: I don't know. It's a little bit <laughs> of both. I'm feeling a little emotional right now. Feel exposed. <laughs> So, my shout out is the Abundant Musician Project. And you can find that both on Facebook. There's a Facebook group called Abundant Musician Project. And then you can also find her at abundantmusicianproject.com. Um, so, this is a platform hosted by Jessica Voigt Page, who is a saxophonist in Austin, Texas. Shout out, Jess. Um, and she is the queen of music entrepreneurship, um, how to approach your career and build it in a way that looks like you want it to and to fill your career with things that you're proud of and to maximize your effectiveness in finances, productivity, quality, all of those type of things. Um, So there are a couple of aspects to the project. Um, She has a blog. Uh, where she'll, um, typical blog, you know, uh, writing about a particular project. She has the Facebook group where she'll kind of give us prompts to talk about and it's very community-based and sharing ideas. Um, She is going to be starting a podcast very soon and there's information about that um, and even the ability to request topics and that type of thing on the website. Um, And then she also offers um, training courses and that type of thing. And um, I actually know people who have taken her courses on on music entrepreneurship and that type of thing, and just a little bit about Jess. Um, she has a massive saxophone studio in Austin. She has um, a summer camp that she runs, and she offers these great uh, programs and whatnot for people to learn kind of how to be effective as she is, and she's just super passionate about starting these conversations about being a 21st century musician and giving you really great things to think about in terms of being self-defining in our careers, and I just I admire her so much. I really encourage the listeners to check out com. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within 1 week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read dish listeners can use the code DISH that's D I S H all caps for 10% off your first order at genderingle.com.
1: Since day 1, Genda reed knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any GenDa reed knife maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at GenDaIndustries.com. That's G-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives.
2: We are so pleased to welcome Oboist Diana Doherty to Double Reap Dish. Welcome, Diana.
0: Hi. Hi. We well, are going to go ahead and start with our first standard question. It's kind of a big, all-encompassing one, but um, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a bit about your educational and training journey and just kind of an overall blueprint of how you got to where you are today?
3: Sure. Okay, hi everyone, um, my name's Diana, I play the oboe, um, so I was born in 66 in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and uh, did my schooling there, um, did my first year at conservatorium at the Queensland Conservatorium, uh, double majoring in oboe and piano, and then moved down to Melbourne to follow my teacher, my oboe teacher, who I'd just changed to, Stephen Robinson. Uh, he moved to Melbourne, so I moved down as well and decided at that time uh, just to continue with the opera. Uh, and so I went to the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne and completed an undergraduate degree there. Uh, and then after doing a few months on a contract as Associate Principal in the Opera Orchestra in Melbourne, I then went to study in Zurich with uh, Thomas Indemuller, and completed my postgrad diploma there and during that time I met my husband well he wasn't my husband then I met this gorgeous guy called Alexandre who um, is a Swiss oboist and uh, he's now my husband and uh, and so when I finished my postgrad degree I um, I kind of thought mm, what am I going to do now because you know I was only on a student visa so I thought well I'd kind of like to stay here, so I applied for a job and um, was very fortunate. I worked for seven years then as principal in the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra, which had a very different name, long German name back then that will not mean anything to anyone. But these days it's called the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra. And, um, yeah, and then Alexandre got a job in the same orchestra, so we thought we were set for life pretty much. And... um, and then we had our first baby, and then I got really, really homesick. And Sydney Symphony had some jobs free, and so we applied for them, and we moved to Sydney in 1997. And since then, we've both been in the orchestra in the Sydney Symphony. Yeah. Voila, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) That was Um, 20 years ago, so, yeah, gosh, the last 20 years have flown. Yeah, yeah. I would love to know um how you started
2: playing the oboe and what made you decide to focus on the oboe instead of the piano
3: sure uh so just as a bit of a back um story i'm the um I'm the youngest of nine children, and my mom and dad were doctors and um that's a whole other story how they came to have nine children <laughs> but, um, anyway they're not they never told us but <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically my parents were both, um, had played piano as young people and my dad played right until his death and um, they loved music, they were keen concert goers and so we were all encouraged to play instruments and we so we all learnt the piano, all nine of us and then we all learnt something else as well uh, and so I, I started actually on the violin when I was about six and then piano when I started added that when I was seven. And then when I was eight at school, there was a, a, I was at a state school and the education department sort of introduced this music program where they wanted to have bands and so they, they were giving free wind uh, instrument lessons. And so I ran home and said, Mom, 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 I want to learn a wind instrument because I think I just wanted to play. I wanted to learn everything. I had all these big brothers and sisters who had all these, you know, we had cello, um, cello in the house a violin flute clarinet there was an oboe one of my older brothers played the oboe and um and there was a trombone and a trumpet and a saxophone and a horn so there was just all kinds of things you know and i used to annoy my older brothers and sisters by always pestering them for if i could have a turn on their instruments so i basically it wasn't that i specifically wanted to play the oboe i just wanted to play everything pretty much um And so I hassled my mom, and she was, as you can imagine, she was a bit frazzled with cooking dinner for all these kids, and um, and so she said, "Oh, don't we have an oboe somewhere? Your brother used to play, you know, and um, why don't you see if you can get a sound out of that, and maybe you can learn that then." And so I did, and that's basically that was it. Um, There was an an old reed, uh, like I'm talking years, (laughs) old. Uh, read in the box it wasn't even in a read box it was just sort of loose in the box and, <laughs> and it was a it was this little Chinese oboe you know where you if you if you bend the keys they just break and half, you know like it was it was really nothing great but I had fun and I managed to get I, rem- I didn't even know where to put my fingers I remember that first time I managed to sort of somehow touch some some keys and um, make a trill so mum had to follow through <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and I was just really, I think, really caught by it. Um, but I, I think, because it's so challenging. And and then when I got serious about music towards the end of high school, I still wasn't really sure music was what I wanted to do. But I certainly got a lot more pleasure from playing the piano than I did from playing the oboe. You know, the whole, the whole reed making thing. I, I think possibly also because I was already getting pretty kind of precious about my oboe playing like I cared about it and, and and that makes it that just makes it more serious somehow so the piano was a great outlet for me uh, and I had much more success with the piano than I had ever dreamed um, so that's why I g- did the double major in my first year and I had a great year on the piano that year actually it, it really it it was soul food where the oboe was a bit of a struggle and um but the thing about piano is that i couldn't sight read i could i could play lots of things from memory but uh i kind of used to learn from from my memory rather than from what i read um and still now i find sight reading is a difficult thing for me um but one line is easier than two so um <laughs> at the end of that year I had a fantastic year on on the piano, actually, and um, would have loved to have continued, but it was clear to me um, that I had big holes in my study of the piano. You know, I basically, I was just in a hurry. I wanted to play great pieces, great music. I didn't want to mess around with scales and stuff like that, so you, you can only really go so far if you don't have the proper... proper you know basis the, the fundamentals so when I moved down to Melbourne to follow Stephen Robinson and and study with him there I I tried to transfer um, and I found a lovely piano teacher who was very honest with me and said well I'll take you as a piano student but only if piano is what you want to do and um, and only piano you know no double major so I said well I didn't really know what to say to that because I still love the piano and um then we have this big competition in Australia. It's got a different name now. It's called the Young Performers Awards. Um, but at the time, it was called the ABC competition, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, competition. And uh, it was like a concerto competition, and they had different categories. They had a category for piano, a category for strings, and then they had this lovely, very um, exotically named category called Other Instruments. And that's what go <laughs> obo- <laughs> So I, I entered both in the piano and um, other instruments category. And um, so there are many rounds, and you can imagine there were many pianists. And, um, yeah, I didn't pass the first round on piano, but I did pass it on the oboe. So I thought, okay, well, we'll just see how the competition goes on the oboe, uh, and, and then I'll go back to piano. So I kind of stopped practicing the piano for a while. And then went all the way to the end and won the competition on the oboe. So it sort of you know, then I sort of looked back and thought, Oh shivers, I haven't played the piano for like three months <laughs> and I never really, really went back to it. Um but it was it was a great time. i and I've I've always really, really appreciated the um the basis that I do have on the piano. I think, um, even though it's got big holes in it, <laughs> it still gives me a lot of pleasure. I don't play much but um, it gives me a lot of pleasure, and it gives me a lot of, I think, um, perspective of, you know, harmony and how how the elbow fits into music and in orchestra and stuff and, um, yeah, how harmony works. So I'm really grateful. Uh, well, we announced that
0: you were going to be on the podcast and did a call for questions from our listeners, and we got a bunch. People are really excited about this interview, and so we want to go to some of those listener questions now. Uh, Christopher has the question, I'd be interested to hear, in a general way, how Australian players feel they fit into the different quote-unquote schools of double reed playing I've heard both fantastic oboists and bassoonists from Australia, Diana being a perfect example, but haven't really listened with a critical ear for influences from other national schools or what kind of differences make the Australian
3: school different from others. Wow, that's a good question. Uh, okay, so I'm not sure I can answer it exactly, but I can say that one of the great things about being in Australia is that we have many influences, but we are not too dictated to by tradition. So uh, I think for a long time, overplaying in Australia was mostly influenced by England. Uh, some of the, and, and you know, when I was a teenager, my teaching was certainly. Uh, from that perspective. Um, not that I ever played plate or anything like that, but, you know, that kind of looking up to Goosen's, um, I guess. And um, and then, of course, Holliger and that, the whole French um, influence. So I think I was always very attracted to... Um, I guess you'd call it European school, although European school involves a number of different styles. Um, But even there, I've never really um, considered that I had to put my, you know, eggs in one basket. I guess there are elements of um, the German orchestral sound that I really love, and there are elements of the modern French players that I, you know, I love as well. Um, And I... I grew up listening to all kinds of oboists, Um a lot of Holliger, uh and um Maurice Borg, uh Pierre Piello, um Neil Black, Celia Nicklins. Unfortunately not so many Americans. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So and, and in at the moment in Australia, I would say there is a definite thread. Um, most people play Marigold, as do I. Um, and there are a few uh, English-style players, um, or there have been. One of them has just moved back to England. Um, so I would say it is sort of that hybrid, that French-German kind of uh hybrid, with a bit of Aussie kind of um, elements thrown in. Yeah, again, like I was saying before, I, I, I feel we are lucky because we don't really have to fit into a box, so we can pick and choose a bit what we like, which is good.
2: Therese would like to know, and this was a pretty common question, um, but how do you produce your signature gorgeous tone? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your sound concept and your reed setup and your oboe,
3: that kind of thing? Wow. I am I'm very flattered to hear that I have a signature gorgeous – what was it? That? That,
0: that was is very – Gorgeous
3: fun. tone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, especially because I think, you know, as a student, I used to get a lot of criticism about, you know, or a lot of feedback about my sound. or, And um, so I, f- I feel like that's been a bit of a battle for me. Um, there's always a sort of... I think I always knew what I was looking for. Um, I, c- I can't really put that into words or, or give you an example of a name or anything like that. But... Um, Okay, so it has yeah it's been a struggle for me, and I know I don't know that I'm really there um, i still I still think about it a lot and I still ask myself a lot of questions and um, search a lot. Uh, my reeds have changed so much over the years and back and forth um, but generally, I like a wider shape I don't like reeds that are too long, but I think they might my reeds might sound long to an American um so i um, play a 47 staple, and the entire reed is 72 millimeters. Um, sometimes a little bit under, but pretty much around there. I play a wide shape because I struggle for flexibility in the low register, and I find that really helps me. I have, uh, I, I, I manage to control in the upper octave a bit better, but I'm. Um, for example, we recently, in the SSO, we just recently performed "Bala 3, and um, as you probably all know, that's the second movement starts with this solo in the oboe. It's a beautiful minuet, very simple, um, but all, you know, from starting on a low E and going all the way down to a B, and that kind of solo was, was, would give me nightmares, and I think I find the, um, finding the depth and the warmth in the sound um, has been my struggle. Also because I think being um possibly uh, you know I'm, I'm quite short um, and I've always had a lot of um uh, what's the word determination I guess um, I find that um, there was no shortage of energy to put into playing, but actually in getting a really beautiful resonant sound, you need to, you need to balance that that energy and that force with um with a certain amount of giving the sound space and finding resonance and that's a concept like you know I, teachers always said that to me um you know if you need more resonance you need to to let the sound mm-hmm. shine and not push it so much but um that took me a long time to really understand and get the hang of and find that balance and even now i still i'm still looking to improve that all the time yeah i'm so inspired by this answer i wish i could
2: (laughs) really want to yeah i want to play this for every single student that i ever meet because you know the you know when i listen for example whenever i teach brahms violin concerto we listen to your excerpt that's on youtube and Mm -hmm. everyone's always like oh my god her tone how do
3: we get that Mm -hmm. tone Mm -hmm.
2: and the (laughs) fact that you work on it is really inspiring you know it's 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 something that you think about and I just love that so much
0: same with my bassoon students I pull up your Brahms violin concerto video (laughs) to talk about tone production and as singing qualities so yeah it's not even just oboists that you're inspiring yeah it's really beautiful
3: Oh gosh, yeah, it's um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a tricky one. Um, I, mm, I think there's also, you know, there's always so this. Possibly, I've I've been too, too focused on how it sounds outside my body, and possibly, what I'm finding more and more is that it's more about the sensation that you feel when you play, because I've always been kind of put off by you know practicing in one room and then going into another room a bigger room or a different room with different flooring and a higher ceiling and and then kind of equating the feeling from one room to another and and I've always thought it's really hard to hold on to what is you in in the sound without reacting to what you hear coming back to you from the room so um that probably that would be my advice is that Work on how it feels and how the resonance is in in your head and then really try to keep that wherever you go and whichever read you're playing and whatever situation you're in. For example, you know, in orchestra when you can barely hear yourself when everyone's playing. And there are so many situations where it's really, really valuable to have that inner kind of reference rather than always listening outside um yeah does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah because then
2: you're not overblowing and forcing the sound Mm. yeah yeah because then you're staying within your your place of resonance yeah that makes
0: total sense so listener tenley wants to know what is it like to have a pillar of the canon named for you blues for dd Hmm. I mean, it seems rare for a piece to be so appreciated and accepted during both the composer and the honoree's lifetimes.
3: Hmm. Wow. So, okay, this is a term I don't know, a pillar of the...
0: Um, I think the listener is saying um, this has become a standard celebrated work. Uh Um, and that usually takes some time to happen, and so she's kind of curious about your perspective in having that happen while you're aware of it.
3: Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. I mean, it is an absolute honor that it's been so adopted, the piece, and that it's, um, well, firstly, to have it written for me and then to have it named (laughs) after me and... um, yeah, and everything that's gone from there. So the thing is that I feel like maybe I should have been a jazz musician in another life or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was living and working in Lucerne, uh, there was a, an American guy, Jeff Agrell, working in the orchestra. He's a horn player in the orchestra. We got on very well, and it was so nice to be able to speak English to somebody. And um, he was such an interesting guy because, you know, he was this very quiet uh, you know, third horn, uh, very reliable, always there, dependable in orchestra, but, you know, not not really saying much. And then, then he'd duck off after the um, service and um, back to his, you know, uh, this studio where he had computers and he was writing things and he was arranging things and he was doing stuff and then he'd be off to the gym and then off to the movies. He had this other life, you know, and which I was really inspired by and um anyway we used to we used to do a few things together We used to go um go to the movies and um and uh, out for dinner and to jazz, listen to jazz and uh things like that and so anyway, Jeff was a great, a great mate and so he wrote a clarinet quartet for uh the quartet of a very good friend of ours, also in the orchestra, a regular Schneider. And Regula has an amazing, she's an amazing clarinet player, but she's also an amazing jazz singer. And he wrote her this clarinet quartet where she, she's playing the clarinet and then suddenly she just starts scatting like crazy, you know. She's got an amazing voice. And I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And I asked him, oh, I'd love you to write something for me because I'd love, I'd love to try and play some jazz, but I'm not, I, I wasn't confident improvising or anything like that. And so he did, and that's what that's what it became. Um, and, of course, at first I thought, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to play this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it just gradually chipped away at it. And, um, yeah, and, and I should just fess up right here and now that the recording of Blues, and Di- Blues for Diddy, especially the solo one, it's got quite a few edits in it, okay? So I don't want anyone <laughs> to go <laughs> feeling inadequate... <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that because it is a scary piece to play um and I mean it's really fun and it's a, a different kind of can of worms from maybe the Brahms Violin Concerto Solo or something you know what I mean it's just on it. it's a different um kettle of fish <laughs> and so I would um yeah I still I still uh work on it from time to time I haven't performed it for quite a while now but um I have one coming up soon. So, yeah, I have been looking at it recently, and it's really it's really fun, really fun. So,
2: listener Scott, who shout out to Scott because he's pursuing his doctorate where I teach. So, hi, Scott. Um, his question is, I always think Diana's playing feels so incredibly passionate in the way she communicates with her colleagues. I've often wondered if that happens organically at that skill level, or if it's something that is a beautiful result of methodical planning. And I think this question goes to um, how are you a great, how do you become a great principal oboist?
3: Ah, uh, yeah. Um, can I just say that I think being principal oboe in a big orchestra is a very challenging job, and there are very many aspects to it. Um, and I have worked continue to be challenged and to work hard at it. Um, I think the passion i've come actually I've come to try to avoid the word passion because um I think passion can get you into trouble as well in many ways but but <laughs> yeah um in terms of orchestral playing. I really had to learn to channel it well and properly and in order to, you know, get on well with my colleagues and um, just sort of, I think it, for me the the issue was that I felt really passionately about the music and I would quickly get very frustrated with my own abilities and feel very limited um, by them and just sort of be a bit of a little thundercloud. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it it, it it's a re- it's been a real journey, I guess, for me and um um I think music makes you fe- if music makes you feel stuff <laughs> and it really makes me feel stuff, then it's it's difficult not to not to play with passion, I guess. Um it's 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 putting it in the right place Um, having it in the right context and um, not letting it make you intolerant of yourself or of other people. So I find it's a fine balance to have that that full commitment and really caring very much about the music that you play, but not caring so much that you make life unbearable for yourself and other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Our last listener question is from Aaron Hill, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin, and he wants to know, uh, the way you move when you play looks organic and beautiful. Do you have any advice for musicians about movement while performing? Mm.
3: That's very nice of him to say that, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I it- yeah, I've had a lot of feedback about my movements as well over my career. Uh, when I studied with Thomas Indermüller, I remember him saying, "You know, if I watch you playing, it's really musical. It's really interesting. But if I close my eyes, it's really boring." <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you bet, you bet. But it was very, it was very telling, you know, and and obviously. You know, and probably also in, in you know leading on from the previous question about channeling your passion, um, I think you know I obviously the, the oboe can feel very limiting. Um, you know, it does to me anyway at times. And I think moving was like I want to get this emotion out. You know, I, wanna, I want to I want I want to um, depict the music and um, and. But he taught, you know, he taught me the importance of really, you know, you, you've got to, you can't just get up and emote. You know, you actually have to analyze it. You have to um, work on the craft in order to provoke those kind of feelings. It's not enough simply to have those kind of feelings, you know what I mean? Um, so... Yeah, I have had I've had, you know, newspaper reviews and stuff that say, Wow, she moves a lot, um, she's a very physical player, blah blah blah. It's it's not ever anything I've tried to do. Um I think um possibly I've had to tone it down in orchestra because, you know, it puts off colleagues to an extent. And maybe that's a function also of maturing and, you know, that you it gets distilled to what's necessary, and um, yeah. So, I've never tried to move while playing. I'm, I. If anything, I try not to move too much when I play. But I think you know that what's really important in in your studying is to gain important understanding about your body and how it works and how it. How it needs to function economically and um yeah organically um i guess ergonomically is that a, is that a thing like you know just because hopefully we'll we'll be in our career for a long time and we want to continue to play well and to be able to um, do our jobs without pain or wear and tear on our bodies i think I think the more knowledge you can have and and awareness about how you use your body, the better. Um, so I do a lot of Pilates, yoga, um, weight training. That, I mean, yeah, I do plenty of that. Not Maybe not a lot, but, you know, three, four times a week. And so I find that I learn so much um, from that. And just about how to use the small muscles, how you know the you know the small deep muscles that really, actually you need to be quite quiet with your big outer muscles to, in order to really feel them and control them. Um, and that's taught me a lot. I think all the all the subtle core work in Pilates has improved my control and my my um, my breathing. Um, yeah. So always trying to improve. On that front as well and possibly I think possibly that has condensed my movements to something a bit more economical over the years too.
2: Yeah it's really making me think about you know uh, one of the usual questions um, that we ask most of our guests is about work-life balance and self-care and I think that touches on that.
3: Mm. Yeah yeah.
2: So my question then to you would be um, with such a demanding job um, how do you
3: deal with things like work-life balance and self-care well yeah that's a really good question also as a mom you know i mean my kids are big now they're 21 and 17 but they're still um you know they require just as much care just in a different way i guess you know emotional energy and um a lot of feeding (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a very very important question that you need obviously you need um you need the right physical uh, uh plan and and also I think mental and, and emotional um how to, you know you, it, it's a very giving thing to be a musician you're giving your heart every time you play and being a parent also is very giving and um so you're absolutely right that there are times I think where you need to carve out something that's for you, Um, and that, you know, that varies. That's different things over the years for me. Um, I've been through, you know, various different hobbies. Um, I love to paint, um, and I love, now I love yoga and Pilates and meditation. I'm learning meditation, which I love as well. Um, And all those things, I think they serve a similar purpose. Also cooking, I I love cooking and making dinners for friends and things like that. And I was thinking just yesterday how actually there's so much overlap, you know, sort of that working on a painting or preparing, meticulously preparing, you know, a nice meal or doing a nice slow yoga class, Um, you're going to a part of your consciousness that is, meditative and calm and um it's taken me a long long time to um to kind of see the real value in that and um because I think as a well as a parent but also as a musician it's very easy to get into this trap of feeling like you've you haven't given enough like you know you could always do more practice or you could you could um You could check their homework more often or, you know, all this kind of – you could make more healthier meals or um, you could uh, fit in an an extra jog or, you know, just things like – it's very easy to keep asking more of yourself or demanding more of yourself and it's very tricky actually psychologically I find to draw that line and say, okay, well – that's all the practice i'm going to do for today or these reads are just going to have to be good enough this week you know and yes i can bind but i'm not going to stay up all night binding and scraping and trying to find something that you know basically i just got to deal with the one i've got and um and get a good night's sleep and you know those those kind of moments are tricky to balance i find um but i find it very helpful having a husband who's an oboist too because we understand each other we Unfortunately, we don't play the same kind of reeds, <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're not much help to each other there, but but just this kind of tacit understanding of, okay, you need to have an app now, uh, or you need a bit of space, or you need to have the, the music room, the reed desk, you need it now, you know, and being able to kind of back off and give give each other space and understanding. Yeah, I think that's... That goes a long way too. I'm very lucky to have someone like that, and um, I've learnt so much from him because he's got a different kind of psyche, I guess, a different, a different kind of person, and he approaches things slightly differently. So that's been really helpful to have other, another perspective on the same thing.
0: Yeah, what a bummer about the reads, though, because I was just, as you are talking, before you said that, I was, like, fantasizing, like, okay, like, I need you to go to the grocery store, I need you to vacuum, and I need you to scrape 10 blanks, and thanks very much.
3: Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, yeah, we don't even have the same shape, nothing, yeah, so. Oh, man. He's always there, he's always, he's a good listener, you know, and that, that's very valuable.
0: Would you tell us about a favorite memory you have of a past
3: performance? Oh, oh! My favorite memories that, that some of them are just hilarious disasters, and um, that's happened quite a few times. Uh, <laughs> like the time we were playing, we were playing uh, Schubert Nine, and Alexander was playing third oboe because the, the conductor won- had doubled all the woodwind, and. So in the interval before we went on to play the Schubert, uh, we put our oboes down next to each other on a table, and I was—I think I was sitting on his lap, and we were laughing and being stupid, and then then we picked up our oboes to go on stage and didn't realize we picked up the wrong oboe, oh and so all the way through the first movement, I thought, gee, is this really the reed, you know, and, <laughs> Something's just a bit weird, you know. It was he. I was playing nine oh one at the at the time, and so was he. So yeah, it wouldn't be so easy to confuse them now because I play an M two. But um anyway, and then then the, the the whole second movement, you know, the ding, but um, but i'm thinking, gosh, I'm just I just got to blow a bit harder than I thought, and this one key, I'm it's really poking into my finger and hurting me <laughs> on my right hand. You know what's going on and. The thumb rest feels different. Everything feels different. And then after the second movement, I kind of looked down the line at the other oboists and go, who's got my elbow? <laughs> and they all just looked at me with this, like, I don't have it. Like, you know, like this. With this uh, and, then, and then the conductor went straight into the third movement. So we still didn't have time to sort this out. Finally, for the fourth movement, Alexon realized that he had mine because he had so little to play. I think he didn't even realize. <laughs> Just, I was just having some kind of little spack attack over there. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> actually, yeah, so finally for the last movement, we swapped oboes, you know, very quickly between movements. And, um, and yeah, phew. But uh, <laughs> that was pretty funny. But um, <laughs> the memorable musical, um, you know, just some of the fantastic conductors that... Um, We've had, it's very difficult, can I just say, <laughs> online, in front of the whole world, it's very difficult to get good conductors out to Australia. They think it's so far, and then and maybe they think, oh, I don't know if it's really worth going that far. But those who do come, we are so grateful for. And um, so I've had the the honor to play with conductors like uh, Charles Dutoit, Lauren Mazel, um, Yannick Nézet-Séguin, and... Uh, most recently, Christoph von Dohnányi, and, um, you know, Donald Lanicles and David Robertson, uh, Ashkenazi. You know, actually, yeah, now that you listen, there are quite a few. But um, there have <laughs> been some, some great musical moments um, with them. Uh, and uh, just, you know, I remember Brooklyn Symphony, the first time Yannick came and he was so young and he just jumped in at the last minute for Mazel who was unwell and conducted Bruckner eight and you know, I'm not a huge Bruckner fan, but it was an amazing thing to do and um yeah, so I guess things like that, you know, when you when you feel like a, a really a valuable part of a big machine and everything's working and and you know, it's like this rush, you know, I, I don't surf but I imagine it's like a really nice wave, you know, and just something that goes really smoothly and um it's 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 a it's a high like no other really. It's it's wonderful being part of a group that where it's functioning really well like that and um and everything all the stars are aligning. So yeah. I love that. Awesome.
2: What advice do you have for those of us dealing with performance anxiety?
3: Mm. Uh, Yep. So there are certain aspects that, um, obviously, in your preparation, there are certain things to look at to give give yourself confidence. It's always good, for example, to, if you can possibly... Have a hand in selecting the repertoire that makes you feel good and aspects like that, but I think what you're asking is more kind of a direct on the day or in the moment kind of um, strategy I've always found that closing my eyes has worked <laughs> um, more or less that if i if I close my eyes i I can focus more on what's going on inside and the music, being really inside the music. Um, I tend to um, prefer playing by memory for that reason, <laughs> um, mm. that if I have my eyes open, I, I'm just too aware of what's going on. Um, you know, they say that if you're nervous, it's because you're thinking about yourself. <laughs> I'm not sure it's really that simple, but but perhaps the flip side of that would be if you just really focus on what you want out of it and and to 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 be in the the life of the music and to be really representing the music rather than representing yourself it just helps me as a as a kind of an attitude a mental attitude that it's not about me making a fool of myself or not it's about me trying to do the best for what the music is intended to do um, other than that i think being as natural as as you can you know not not feeling like you have to be something you're not. They say a banana helps <laughs> natural beta blocker. Um, although I'm not really fond of bananas myself, but um I, I would recommend some kind of meditative exercise. Um, just getting getting a a moment of quiet. I think it's very tempting to say, oh, I've got to go through this tricky bit one more time and I've got to check my read one more time and um I've got to clean my over one more time and sort of being a bit um really disparate in your thoughts rather than, I would suggest the contrary, really trying to bring your thoughts inwards and breathe and really bring the focus inward rather than letting it just go blah outward. Um, That's probably the most valuable thing for me and that's what I'm really learning uh, from meditation and yoga, you know. So this question, we'd love to hear about
0: um, some of your favorite pieces to perform. So you can talk to us about solo repertoire you love, chamber, orchestral. What gets you, like, really excited to perform?
3: Wow. Um, Well, I have to say that just this week – with the Sydney Symphony, we recorded um, a new Opa concerto that was written for me last year and premiered this year in February by Australian composer Nigel Westlake, who some people may have heard of. He has composed for some films, including Babe. Uh, And uh, I absolutely love this piece. And um, I... Like, I listen to it for fun, you know, at the gym or whatever. Um, it's it's so, so great and, and so much fun to play. It's very challenging, but it's very, very accessible too. And um, it's got a whole range, like a real range of um, colors and um, textures and moods. Uh, so I'm very excited about that piece at the moment. Um, I I don't generally enjoy recording at all, but I have to say (laughs) doing the recording was really fun because we got to play it over and over and (laughs) over. And I love that. I love that. um, So I'm I'm very excited about that piece. He's also now, um, he's arranged it for string quartet, piano and oboe. So I'm looking forward to performing that version of it as well uh it's called Spirit of the wild um so yeah it's pretty wild <laughs> um, so that's that's one piece that i'm uh, very absorbed by at the moment um generally i like yeah, I like to set myself challenges like um one thing I did in the last few years was um performed the César Franck Violin Sonata on the oboe, and cool. which is, well, it's very cheeky to do that. I'm very sorry if any violinists <laughs> are here. Please don't be cross with me. But it's just, I really feel like that's a kind of style that we just we really don't have much of um, in the oboe repertoire. And yes, it's hugely challenging, but hugely satisfying to play such great music. And also, you know, I, I have a lovely pianist, Bernadette Harvey, that I like to work with, and um, I feel sorry, I feel bad giving her Pasquale and, you know, Vivaldi Sonata, and, you know, I, I, wa- I want to give her something to really chew on, you know. I think that that's what was so fun about the Blues for Didi um, CD, is that, you know, with the Jolivet, a, a captive pianist like David Korova, um, who I worked with a lot at the time you know it was amazing he could play anything that guy and you could just throw anything at him so things like that where a duo where it's really balanced and really um yeah so uh I love doing things like that yeah I love doing collaborative stuff I guess more than having said that I also did a concert last year which was a real highlight for me something I've been wanting to do and that is I tried to play all the Telemann fantasies in one concert and that was yeah (laughs) that was really a bit stupid but really fun at the same time and it also prompted me I mean the reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to understand the arc you know and why Telemann chose a particular character for a particular key and why that sequence of keys and so it prompted me to do some research in um into the affects and uh, synesthesia, and so on. I developed a little text for each one uh, to be read. A friend of mine read um, before I played each fantasy. He would he would give a kind of an image based on um, famous quotes by by people, um, you know, like Messia and Scriabin, famous um, synesthetes who um, ascribed color to certain keys. And um, yeah, and and looking and, and uh, looking at the the affective um, properties of of tonalities. Um, so yeah, that was really fun putting that together, and really fun playing it. I got to leave out lots of repeats. That was a good thing <laughs> because it <there> was <laughs> in a church, and the um, and they only had an hour free for lunch, so um, I had to it had to all fit within one hour. Yeah, it was a very special, very special day. Um, it was actually the last time my father was able to hear me play. It as it turned out, we didn't realize at the time, and um, so I look back on that day, you know, just very, very fondly. And yeah, because I, I found the Telemann fantasies really hard as a student, um, and so I, I was really happy to find my peace with them and in fact really really love them find my own way to love them and yeah I enjoyed not having a teacher saying no not like that not like that (laughs) and just doing what I felt just doing what I felt I wanted to do with them and yeah I loved it so yeah I guess such a creative idea yeah yeah I hope to do it again someday
2: So for our last question, I'd love to ask what advice you might
3: have to young musicians
2: who aspire to have a career like yours.
3: Mm. Okay. Uh, I do think the world has changed a lot since I was a student, and I think while students today have so many more resources at their fingertips, you know, with YouTube and Internet and recordings and everything, I also think it's very difficult and so competitive. So I would, I guess my advice would be stay really true to yourself, to 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 want what you want to get out of it, um, while obviously you have to jump through hoops and tick boxes to get degrees and win auditions. I think um, beyond that, I think it's very important not to try to do too much, not to try to be everything to everyone. Especially... Especially when, you know, if you win a competition or something and suddenly everybody wants something, you know, or wants you to play here and, and play there. I, I would say don't be afraid to say no thanks, I'm I'm I've got enough on at the moment. Um because it can be so overwhelming and um there's really nothing wrong with taking things slowly, um, and doing them in a considered way rather than rushing around trying to fulfill so many engagements that you lose sight of why you're doing it and what is creative about it, I think. Um, because at the end of the day, I think we love music because it speaks to us emotionally and I mean we all love it for different reasons, but, but there, it is an artistic, creative pursuit um, and there's a part of us that needs nourishing in an artistic and creative way. Um, so we need space for that. I think, you know, always rocking up to orchestra and always playing what's on the stand is fantastic, but I think you need another side. You need to be able to explore your creativity and your, um, you know, what attracted you to an artistic pursuit in the first place too. So I think, yeah, while it's really important to work hard and, and take good advice and um, I think it's also very Very important to listen to yourself and be okay with saying no sometimes. Well, Diana,
2: thank you so much for being on the podcast. It has been really wonderful to talk to you. I'm so glad we were able to have you on, and thank you again so much.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for
0: asking me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) No
3: worries. (laughs)
0: So we hope you enjoyed that epic interview with Diana Doherty. That was so cool. We were so excited. Can't thank her enough for coming on. For our next episode, we will be welcoming bassoonist Kristen Schillinger from Ithaca College onto the podcast.
2: And as always, you can find us on our social media. Um, Everything Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is Double Read Dish, and you can email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com.